Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings dear listeners and welcome to episode 4 of season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast where we go through the Dark Ages line of books and talk about each of them both in terms of history and as gaming books. My name is Jacob and I'm Peter. So Peter, how's Sweden? Uh, cold at the moment. Uh, a couple of days ago it wasn't that cold uh, so we, we had this amazing uh, phenomena of, of most of the snow and ice melting away and just leaving a very thick layer of ice where everyone has mm. been walking and uh, then when uh, a few days ago when when the cold came back uh, everything froze over again so um, yeah that was interesting I was out with podcast doggo the other day uh, and we basically had to ice skate on a few of the forest <laughs> paths that that, that we that, that we usually walk on. So, uh, yeah, that was interesting. Uh, how's how's the climate change in your part of the world? Uh, well, cold, but I assume not as cold as Sweden because we have what is pretty much a standard Danish winter, which is just like Danish autumn, only colder. And with the occasional sleet, but never snow. It's just, it's 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 get it gets depressing from time to time because you just you're waiting for something to happen. Like, could we please get some snow? Could we please get some <laughs> something that that seems like winter? But no, it's yeah, it's the yeah. usual Danish dreariness. But mm. uh, you get used to it when you live here. Mm. Yeah. So uh, you mm. should you should come come visit. You always bring good weather with you. Yeah, I need to do that. But again, there's there's the thing going on. So uh, yeah, yeah, there's the there's the whole thing. Mm. Anyway, let's go back to a, a less depressing time, the Dark Ages. <laughs> yeah, where where you didn't have pandemics and plagues and and other horrible things. Uh, no, certainly not. Anyway, um, we finished the core book, and now it's on to the Storyteller's Companion, written by Heather Grove, Jim Keeley, and Chris Hartford. Hello, Chris, if you're listening. And Hi. developed by, Ma- by Matthew McFarland. So, starting with the cover, and, well, I hate to say this, but it's bad. And not just, I don't like it bad, I think it's objectively not a very good cover. Am I way off base here? No, it's... I don't know. I, I can see some kind of artistic merit in it, but it's it's very much in, in an art style that really doesn't do anything for me. Uh, should I describe it or do you want to do it? Or? <laughs> I think you should go for it. Well, well, it's... It, it, it depicts a... What do you call them? A, a, that's, a, is it a Cappadocian or a Salubri? No, it's a Cappadocian, Salubri. right? Salubri. Yeah, it's because, because it's, you have the third eye. Yeah, the third eye, yeah. Um, and uh, and a salubri knight uh, or warrior of some kind wearing chainmail, uh, dual wielding a couple of swords, standing over a fallen comrade, and there are four apparently naked. I don't know, elves almost if you look at their ears, uh, but but the, these very emancipated or emaciated. Which which one is it? Where you're really emaciated? Emaciated. Thank you. Uh, English is a difficult language, but but yeah, they're they're being watched by these four weird naked characters with with very thin bodies, and uh, some of them have tattoos on their heads, and some of them have elf ears, uh, and then I think it's supposed to be symbology, uh, some kind of uh, symbology, uh, because there is also inserts of a mosquito, a centipede, and what I'm assuming is a flea. At the bottom, and I'm I'm guessing that it's some kind of a ooh blood sucking thing, uh, but to my knowledge, centipedes don't drink blood. So, um, yeah, there there's a lot of vivid colors going on in the background. I don't know if there's supposed to be a, a volcano eruption or a firestorm or or something, but it's yeah, it's it's very. 
what what do you call it? It's it's uh, oh, I, I keep losing words, but it's it's very kind of of, of almost abstract uh, in a way that the, the the background kind of flows yeah. into the into the rest of it. So yeah, I, I I had to spend a lot of time trying to figure out exactly what the cover was going for. Yeah, and I'm just thinking when it's a cover. I think it should be something that just grabs you immediately, something where you you instantly get some sort of idea. And here it's just like what? And the colors are are weird. And yeah. Um, anyway, like I said, I I really don't like it. But if if we move on to the inside art, I like that a lot better. Um, mm. The full page black and white pictures that precede each chapter are just gorgeous. Uh, at least some of the chapter illustrations for bloodlines and paths are pretty good. Yeah. And sorry, character illustrations for mm. uh, bloodlines and paths are pretty good. And for some reason, I just love the picture on page 34 where you have someone demonstrating uh, using a bombway, the bombway discipline to roar. Where I just have this like guy with a huge mouth and blood and yeah. big teeth and that that's a very evocative picture um there are quite a few weapons and most of them are sadly off historically yeah. uh, the big picture on page four has someone wielding what it, it looks like either a small back sword or a palash or something um yeah. page or, six or, or a someone... cup-hilted rapier even but it's it's quite off yeah but but it, yeah, yeah, it's like, could it be a rapier? But then the blade looked off, and most yeah. cop-hilted rapiers don't have a knuckle pole. Um, page six has someone with a double-headed axe. Uh, on page 20, we have someone wielding a two-handed sword. I think I've talked about that enough. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a couple of character pictures which have weird knives, usually curved. Um, and then uh, I like, uh, I generally like the picture of the Lamia on page 15, except that the arming sword that, that she's wielding is, is far more of a 14th century than a 13th century sword. Yeah. And the less we talk about the low cut male dress that she's wearing, the better. Because, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be wearing male armor, but I wanted to show off my cleavage. Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so, uh, that's a weird kind of of uh, juxtaposition. Uh, but but yeah, um, I uh, I actually like that picture on um, uh, on w w with the what is it on page four that you mentioned with the two handed axes, but not not because of the uh, axes, but because of basically everything else. Yeah, uh, yeah, I it, think it's really cool. You you did even back then have two-handed um, uh, woodsman's axes, so it it could be those. But as as battle axes, no, you didn't really have those. Uh, but it depicts this kind of of uh, classical um, vigilante mob with literally with pitchforks and torches. Uh, yeah, hunting exactly. For, that's that's cool. Yeah, so so it's a really cool picture, and they're uh, hunting. Um, a vampire who's hiding up on on a roof and uh, is is wielding a spear, uh, and spear are always um, deeply unappreciated, or, or they they are sadly not represented enough in uh, in art and and movies because they spears are really good weapons and they they're easy to make and and uh, easy to train with. So so cool on that. Uh, I also like the. The front character who is has this kind of classical. Uh, what what do you call those the, those hairstyles in in the? It's uh, it's called a bowl haircut. Yeah, exactly. Because you just put a bowl on someone's head and cut around it, and he has yeah. a very fancy mustache as well. So, uh, so yeah, I, I agree that the axes look a bit out of place, but but over, overall, uh, it's a really cool picture. Um, I really also you don't see much of it, but like the cityscape around yeah. it looks very appropriate for a medieval cityscape. Yeah, with, with a narrow alley going down a flight of stairs. Uh, yeah, and there's so. no railing on the stairs, and yeah. you have uh, with the houses you have the upper floors coming out over the lower floors. Mm. It's just that is that is a really good illustration of a medieval cityscape. Yeah. And then we have on. Let's see. We it, it's actually the the Bali illustration on page nine, um, which is it, it's actually kind of a, a, a nice depiction of a fifteenth century outfit, or perhaps even later, uh, because um, it just ignore the facial tattoos, uh, but. 
uh, it's it's a guy wearing a, a, a long uh, smock or fro- frock or, or um, garb basically uh, and he has uh, some very nicely decorated gloves which like fancy gloves was a thing back then and he's wearing this kind of chaperone style of of headwear which uh, is is really cool but it's about about 200 years off from the time period that we're set in um, so so again we have this this phenomena of of uh, them using uh, more or less historical outfits but to illustrate the completely wrong time period um, <laughs> but again it's it, yeah it, it, it it's not really a problem it's a cool outfit um, but there are some that aren't as cool uh, and I'm gonna see yeah we have the Lianon on page 17 who looks more like I don't know a modern pagan uh, yeah with, with again speaking of cleavage uh, she's basically wearing just a uh, some kind of, of vest and uh, a fur cloak that doesn't really do anything to protect her because it's just hanging down the back so you you wouldn't get any protection f- for most of your body with that kind of outfit and then she's wearing uh, shorts um, <laughs> which is just a bit weird and then there's one that is let me see if I can find a one um that just oh yeah the the path of paradox person on page thirty which the the whole look from literally from top to bottom is is just a big what the fuck for me uh, with with the kind of almost eighties hairstyle looks like something a post punk someone would wear and then some kind of weird like baggy pants and a lot of sashes going around their waist. It's it's just very very strange. Um, it it for me it kind of looks like someone who's going to a fantasy LARP and is just going for a generic fantasy look. Yeah, yeah, like the really like if if this guy would have shown up in the you know the the lightning ball lightning ball lightning ball video from uh, that that makes fun of LARPers, uh, that person would or this person would would fit right in that one. Uh, there is one on page 26 that is, uh, it, it has nothing to do with anything historical because it illustrates the Road of Metamorphosis um, character. Uh, and it's just really, really creepy and weird. Uh, yeah. And it has some serious, I'm, I'm getting some serious Cenobite vibes actually because it's, it's basically someone who has made um, a, a huge cloak out of, what I assume is supposed to be human skin, and it's it's sewn straight to their body, uh, which is just like it's disgusting and weird and and creepy and yeah, I love it. It's it's really cool. It really works with the um, with the path that it's that it's portraying. Yeah, so exactly, that's really good. Yeah. So the introduction is about half a page and. It just gives you an overview of what's in the book and a short paragraph about the purpose of the book. So there's nothing really to talk about here. Um, chapter one is bloodlines covering the Bali, Gargoyles, Libon, Lamia, Lianon, and Salubri. I like how they suggest that bloodlines should be kept rare and mysterious. I mean, obviously, storytellers can do what they want, but I think bloodlines work best if there aren't a lot of them around uh, all the time. Otherwise, they're much as we know them. Uh, and they do mention that the Bali and Gargoyles make for poor player characters. The Lianen uh, are now less uh, the Celtic vampires and more just the pagan vampires, though their discipline is still called Ogham. Um, I'm still not a big fan of Gargoyles. I think making them vampires borders on silly. I am, however, still a big fan of the Bali as excellent antagonists. Mm. Other than that, uh, my only big comment is that under the Bali, it is mentioned that they flinch from holy symbols such as crosses and the Star of David. But the Star of David wasn't considered a Jewish symbol uh, until around the 17th century. So just a a little mistake there. But they were ahead of their times. Come on, man. (laughs) Apparently so. It was before it was you know the star of david and considered a jewish symbol it was the um the seal of solomon which was used to bind demons so maybe 
that's uh, why they flinch from it. But as the Star of David and as the symbol for Jews, sort of analogous to the Christian crucifix, that wasn't until the 17th century that that was, mm. was there. But what do you think yeah. about the, the bloodlines? Well, I, it, we, we have the same problem that we talked about before, is that there are too many weird things creeping about in the night and and not enough room in the monasteries for them, so to speak. Uh, but uh, I, I think that uh, this chapter is well written for the most part. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking like, if, if we start in the kind of shallow end or in, uh, with, with the quick things that, yeah, I agree that uh, I, I can see why they made gargoyles vampires because you want to have this whole conflict of... of uh, uh, the Tremere uh, turning uh, Gangrel and Smitsch and Osfratu into, uh, into their slaves, basically. But, yeah, it's, it, it doesn't really work um, as, as you say, uh, as player character, and it, it just feels a bit silly. Um, when it comes to, uh, to the Bali, the way that they are written in this, uh, in, in this book... I think it would be, I, I think it would make a lot more sense if if you just had them as as an actual sect rather than a bloodline because, like the the thing they, they their whole thing is they that they corrupt others, yeah, um, and it feels kind of weird that it's it's turning into a, a, hered, a hereditary thing that that yeah my. It, it, I don't know. It's kind of like, yeah, my my parents were Cathars, and so, yeah, if I grew up with them, then I'm gonna most likely be a Cathar as well. But if you're adopted away into uh, a Catholic family or whatever, uh, or or be taken as a slave to to a completely different part of the world, then you're most likely not going to grow up as a Cathar. And I, I think. It would be more interesting and more useful if if the Bali were just kind of like this this sect or a cult or secret society uh, that are corrupting otherwise. And you yeah. you can still have all the things that that kind of make Bali the Bali with their infernal powers and and if you want the vulnerability to holy symbols and stuff like that. But it's I don't know it. it they don't need to be a bloodline, uh, and in the in the same kind of way that gargles really don't need to be a bloodline, and so I I, I don't see why they would have to be. Um, make them their own sect. You can, as I said, you can still give them give them all of the stuff that they need uh, to be Bali, uh, but you you kind of get rid of this problem with. Um, with them, with, with the whole too many supernatural things in a very crowded world with a lot of other supernatural yeah. things. Uh, so I don't know. What, did, am I completely wrong with this? No, I mean, thoughts? I like the. I also like the idea of just making them uh, so that all of them have to be apostates that have defected from another uh, another um, clan. Also because that makes it interesting because you have to, um, first and foremost, they have to go out and, and um, actively recruit. They can't just embrace, embrace, embrace. And also it, it, it sort of increases the, the paranoia. It's like, well, anyone in any clan could at any point have been corrupted yeah. by the Bali. So I think it's an, an interesting take on them. Because, as you said, it doesn't change them all that much. It just means that if you're a Bali, it's not because you were embraced a Bali. It was because you actively chose to leave your previous clan to betray it and become a Bali. So uh, so I think that that would be a, a really cool take on it. Yeah. Uh, the the other <laughs> clans, that I'm, I'm not going to say that... Um that I have a problem with with the other bloodlines, but but uh, kind of a, a running theme is that I think that a lot of them don't really need to be uh, separate bloodlines, so to speak, uh, because it's it's kind of like some of them kind of step on the toes on on other clans, like for example the the uh, Lianan. 
are their whole thing is basically that they're they're dying off and they're that there's just very few of them which is kind of like yeah well isn't that the salubrian the cappadocians isn't that <laughs> yeah. really what they're doing so so again do they really need to be their own uh their own separate bloodline or could it just be kind of like a storytelling device that oh here we have a few uh people still holding on to their ancient beliefs or, or ancient thing that there used to be. And, and the whole dying off of an, a complete bloodline is like, we've, we've seen that before. Um, and, and in a similar kind of way, the, the Lamia are kind of like, what, what, what purpose do they fulfill that you can't really do with, with another clan or, uh, and, and they, they do have this kind of interesting relationship that we, we talked about it in when we discussed them previously that they can be kind of cool but I think they kind of played out their their purpose by that time which is kind of fitting since they're gonna go away pretty soon mm. uh, but the one that I feel that they had a good idea but the execution was the poorest is, is probably the Liabon because having an entire bloodline which when you when you come down to it their basic thing is that we're not europeans yeah to me that is rather problematic and i've mentioned it before that there's there's really nothing that should have would have could have stopped um the like the the fourth generation uh, clan members to go out into non-european parts of the world uh, embracing a bunch of people and then coming back so that you could ha- like there's there's no reason why you can't have um uh, like sub-saharan uh ventru for example like they, there could have been someone who went there and started embracing people and, yeah exactly uh, and and you do, you do have connections to it you do have the uh, like back in the roman times you you had hunters going out uh, and and catching animals to to bring back to the uh, uh, gladiatorial arenas uh, so so like the, there was an exchange even way before everything else and and you have like uh, the coptics in in ethiopia which are are christians so you have when when that comes around that's that is spread as well and to be fair i can't really i, I don't really remember when when the um, Coptics became, or, or the Ethiopians uh, got their Christian sect, but uh, so it could be later on. I apologize. No, it if, was. If um, making... they, I know. But it is I know the, the, the Ethiopians were Christian at the time of um, of Emperor Julian of Constantinople. Um, mm. So, so they've been Christ. They were Christian at least in the fifth century. Yeah. So, so you have this. You have this interaction and exchange and, and connections. Uh, to to other parts of the world, uh, so I like I I like the fact that they're trying to open up that yeah you everyone doesn't have to be like just white and nerdy just because they're you want to play a vampire in in Europe in the Dark Ages, but there are other ways to solve this um, and and what's really problematic is that the Libon kind of disappeared then they they're not really a part of of uh at least not vampire the masquerade in in the modern setting i i think they made some that they're mentioned in in is is it called out of no i hope it's not called out of africa <laughs> no it's called uh, um kingdom of the uh, like kindred of the ebony kingdom uh the king, africa yeah. source book and in the um in the vampire dark ages 20th anniversary edition they Add they have the Libon as the general descriptor for sub-Saharan African vampires, and then they have some bloodlines that are specific sub-Saharan African vampires. So we'll get into that when we get to that. But you're absolutely right. Yeah. Here they have most of an entire continent um, represented by a single bloodline, and and yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I'll say with the Libon, their weakness is definitely a weakness. That's that's some some serious oh, yeah. stuff. Where, yeah. where when they spend spend blood, their beast consumes a, a tithe of blood, so that whenever they're spending blood, they have to spend extra. That is, uh, yeah, that's that is pretty devastating. A, that's a weakness. Yeah, and and again, it's it's not like the 
or at least for the most part, the, the actual bloodline isn't really that bad written. It does have kind of like this, you know, noble savage kind of, of vibe going on yeah. that doesn't really age well. Um, and but again, I think I think you could solve the whole problem of um, of of having um, non-European vampires from the continent of Africa by just saying that well, Libon is is the equivalent of of a sect down there, or that's that's what they call their society, yeah. uh, and and this is their version of the traditions and so on and so forth. Um, but and and you can even have include their uh, their discipline the a bomb a uh, my apologies for the poor pronunciation but but you can still have these kind of like non-European visitors if that's what you want to call them because that's basically how they're described it's basically that they're they they run around or or they come visit and and they travel for a bit and then they go back uh, so you can still have everything without the need for making them uh, a, a complete independent bloodline so um yeah i i think that's kind of I, I think that would have been a better solution and again you have to give them credit for doing what they did when they did but it hasn't really aged well and that's probably my biggest crap with them yeah exactly um, and and we we will get onto some better stuff when we get to 20th anniversary edition i think that oh, what they've done cool. there with the with the libon where that you know you have other mm. bloodlines I, I think they've done a better job there so um yeah. anyway uh chapter two covers yeah. we, we just skipped over the salubri but basically that's yeah, I mean, that's what you can do yeah exactly it's not, there's nothing much to say no they're they're what they are uh you know they're yeah. the warriors they're the there's healers. like seven of them <laughs> people know about them so but chapter two covers yeah. minor roads specifically the road of bo uh, blood bones metamorphosis night paradox and the serpent uh, apparently the road of paradox does not involve putting out big historical uh, strategy computer games <laughs> yeah you, you don't uh, even have to be swedish to follow the the path of paradox nope. yeah <laughs> anyway um people who get that joke will get it people who don't will will think it's uh, weird and people who do get it yeah. might also think it's weird anyway uh personally i'm not really a big fan of the proliferation of roads but they do mention that these are getting quite rare uh however mm. they seem pretty much to be roads of doing what you are going to do anyway so yeah, for me they're not that interesting, but I can see how they might add some flavor. Yeah, I I agree. It's um, the, the again we we talked about the the way that that roads are utilized in this edition of the game, and it's kind of weird that they have these auras going on and and everything like that. Um, and and again, I think you could you could probably like you said, it's basically what you're going to do anyway, and. Uh, and, and you could probably have most of these roads being just interpretations or sects or the way you would like to roleplay one of the other main roads. Uh, so I, I don't know. I, I'd probably, if I'd use them, I'd, I'd probably just use them as, as more of a storytelling device or a narrative device rather than... Um, than, than a set of mechanical rules um, because it's I, I don't know it's 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 weird that your basically your your ideology or philosophy has uh, like mechanical impact on the way you roleplay them um, so so yeah that, that's that's a bit weird I I'm just gonna go on a, a tangent stop me if, if you find it boring but go, go, go. I, I really do like the the coat of arms that they have for the for the different roads oh, uh, yeah. because the style is is very much uh medieval uh in its outlook and and i especially like the uh the road of bones because it's uh it's it's a skull uh over i'm assuming that it's supposed to be a chess piece or something a pawn that we're all pawns in the game of life and death mm. uh, but what i really like is that the skull um, very much follow the style of, of how skulls and skeletons are depicting because it's almost look uh, it, it almost looks happy and and like it's smiling <laughs> and uh, if if you look at medieval art like a lot of of the uh, the skeletons that you see even in the kind of horrific kind of dance with death or triumph of death 
kind of, of paintings, they often look like almost like impudently happy and smiling like yeah i'm i'm gonna bury uh, this entire family in in a shallow grave but i'm gonna smile while i'm doing it and um one of my favorite examples of this is the uh, painting by uh peter bruegel uh Bruegel, i don't know how to pronounce it uh f- that is called the triumph of, of death uh, from 1562 and it's it's one of these huge painting where a lot of things going on and basically the theme is that it doesn't matter if you're poor or rich or a, a man or a woman or a, a cardinal or a king uh, you're you're going to end up dead yeah exactly uh, sooner or later anyway <coughs> death, uh, death and, has and a way we, of making us all equal yeah exactly um, and what I think is really interesting in in uh, it's it's as I mentioned all of the amazing details. Uh, so not only like I, I really recommend it if if you want to set a um, a game in the fifteen like the mid fifteen hundreds, uh, take a look at that picture because it has basically everything you need uh, or a lot of things that you need when it comes to fashion when it comes to stuff like furniture you have uh, a backgammon set being depicted you have uh, playing cards you have like tools uh, there's a pilgrim with a bunch of, of badges on his hat uh, there are weapons and armor there are, are people in in kind of landsknecht's armor and going back to kind of what we mentioned briefly from time to time and and that is kind of the the false assumption that there weren't any non-europeans in europe during this time period um in the kind of middle of these pictures you have at least three people who at least to me look very much like they are of of african descent uh so so it's like non-white people were depicted even back then and and it's not like they're pointed out and, and like look these are special uh, but they're also shown as being part of the these masses that everyone dies yeah um, you also have at least two people wearing what looks very much like um, uh, middle eastern turbans uh, so so like you, if if you want to have non-white people in your games just just do it uh, and if you want to have creepy skeletons running around, you can apparently have that as well because <laughs> this this painting is is full of them. Uh, one of my favorites of the skeletons is in the bottom right corner because uh, it's wearing this kind of uh, hood or cloak and uh, or these long robes with a hood, I should say, uh, and the hood has ears on it. Uh, which kind of sticks out and it's it's a nice blue color and you have these kind of donkey ears sticking out the side of it it just looks really fun uh, so so yeah I, I can recommend this picture and and Bruegel's other paintings as well because they have some amazing details some of it is really gruesome uh, there are depictions of, of torture and death and executions in this one as well so uh, beware if if you don't like that kind of thing uh but but yeah that was just a a side note being tr- <laughs> be, being triggered by me just liking the the artwork of the coat of arms but of i will the say this that uh, the coat of arms that they've been making um in general for both roads and clans and bloodlines and stuff most of it looks really really good and i like this idea of them having coat of arms i mean as we mentioned when we looked at the core book some of the coat of arms is more advanced that they would than they would have in yeah. 1230 but it's still a cool idea and it still looks really really good uh and and having these especially for clans rather than for uh than, than the modern sort of symbols for clans it makes sense yeah. uh and it makes the whole thing look look more fancy yeah and and they're they're simple in a way that uh like the 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 symbology is is kind of obvious but but still very clever so for example the the road of metamorphosis has um two uh two leg bones uh crossed and underneath it you have a moth which again moths were and butterflies are a sign of uh, or, or a symbol of change and and transformation so like it's 
it's kind of obvious, but again, like heraldry and and uh, signs being used uh, even today are obvious for a reason because you're supposed to recognize them. So yeah, exactly. so yeah I, I really like these little details. Yeah. So moving on to chapter three, this is the disciplines of the new bloodlines. Uh, nothing much has changed since first edition, though the Lamia discipline is now the mortis path of four humors. And we do get both the healer and warrior version of Valorin in one book, so it's, it's nice to have all that connected. The Lianan discipline, Ogham, it feels a bit Hollywood Celtic to me, um, yeah. almost like, you know, New Wiccan. Uh, but uh, and I'm not sure I like the modular approach to gargoyles, but that might be just my general dislike of gargoyles. Um, but I don't know if you have any specific comments on these disciplines. Well, I, I agree with the kind of Hollywood <laughs> Celtic thing, and um, and and I the the thing with the gargoyle thing that you basically buy power so you can mix and match. Like, do you want to have a, a flying sneaky uh, gargoyle or do you want to have like a, a, a dive bombing attack gargoyle or what, what do you want like again i i can see why they like the reason why they they solved quote unquote gargoyles in this way because um it doesn't really make sense to to have them have their own special discipline but at the same time it kind of emphasized the point that you made previously that it's weird that they're actually vampires and they should be just like a, a random creature or or their own kind of creature in the same way that that war ghouls are yeah, for, exactly. for example to to make a good comparison um i i do like there's there are some things in in some of the other uh, uh, disciplines that that I really like. They're mechanically they're they're actually not that badly written. Uh, I do actually like a bomb way. It's it's an interesting uh, discipline. Yeah, I think so too. That I think that's one of the most interesting of the disciplines with their focus on the vampiric beast. Yeah, exactly, and and how you can utilize the beast as a tool. Uh, I think that the, the the level one though is it's basically just a crappier version of of Auspex two because it lets you sense uh, the beasts or or other beasts around you. And I'm thinking like, well, can't you just do that with Auspex two and and looking at auras? And Auspex two is more useful because you can figure out other things as well uh so it feels i don't know it feels very situational and basically just a a, a discipline tax to get to the cooler things <laughs> on on level two and upwards um but but mechanically it, it works and it's it's uh, at least from i can tell i i've never really played or i haven't actually played with with any of these so i can't say if if they're balanced or not but especially considering that um that the Libon has to pay the extra blood point costs, then I can't really see that they would be overpowered. No, that 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 extra cost is uh, that's that is I've like I said before, that's a serious weakness. That is a true weakness. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, with the with the disciplines, it's always it's I think it's something that a lot of people go, "Ooh, I want to check out the new disciplines," but there's nothing much to talk about with them. So yeah. uh, moving straight on yeah. to the last chapter. Uh, this is the Storyteller's Toolkit, which is a good name because it contains a lot of tools. We start with Supporting Cast, which gives suggestions on how to build NPCs. Both mortals, ghouls and vampires of every age and power level. Uh, I have no comment here because I think it just all seems like good stuff. No, I, I, I agree. There's a lot of, of useful advice for, for Storytellers, like adding quirks to, to NPCs to make them more... Um, more memorable and and like remember to give your NPCs motivation. Uh, I I think it's a well well written chapter and it could uh, easily like if if you have this and you play any other uh, role playing game, you could use the same advice that you get from uh, from this uh, to to flesh out your other NPCs in other games as well. Yeah, uh, there there are some kind of interesting um, peculiarities which has more to do with the way the storytelling system works rather than um, this being a bad chapter like uh, you Jacob have mentioned uh, from time to time that it's kind of weird that um, 
that horses uh, have a higher stamina than most people and and sometimes even most vampires um, and and you get this same kind of of problem with when attributes yeah. uh, have to cover a wide range of, of uh, uh, abilities so you have um, the craftsman for example who has the strength of two a dexterity of three and a stamina of one uh, and like <laughs> it says that it like carpenters leather workers bakers and brewers and if you're a carpenter or, or even a baker like you did a lot of heavy lifting back then and it's it feels kind of weird that you would only have a stamina of one but at the same time you would make a good dancer or or like pickpocket because you have a high dexterity like it, it's it's kind of weird but that's just because how the the storytelling system <laughs> yeah, works yeah exactly um but but like yeah overall like you you don't really have any of these kind of weird exaggerated uh npcs that you see from time to time like that you you have a city guard that could take out a coterie of of uh, uh, beginning players just because their their stats are just widely out of bounds so so yeah it's it's nice and useful and you can just like if if you want to have like or you don't necessarily need stats for characters all of the time but if you do it's like oh i'm gonna talk to a trader and uh he's gonna try to lie to my character so yeah i'm just gonna look on page 59 and there you have it yeah exactly uh, so. so next is names and titles talking about surnames noble titles and giving examples of names from around europe it's a bit simplistic mm. but then there isn't much space so they couldn't really go into detail but it's it's a nice overview of these things as for the names list i am no expert on medieval names but i have named quite a few npcs and it generally looks good, and it was something that was nice to have before the internet made finding medieval names a lot easier. I will mention, however, that they have a section on Spanish names, and as we've mentioned quite often, Spain did not exist, so it should probably mm. be Iberian names. Also, um, the list of Scandinavian names. It yeah. <laughs> looks very pre-Christians. Uh, some of yes. these would still be in use, but local variation variations on more christian names would be more prevalent yeah i i noticed that as well and i had the same uh kind of reaction to it in that the the scandinavian names are are very much kind of the uh, viking uh sounding names uh and and as you mentioned a lot of them were um around for for quite some while even afterwards but uh, and and I feel the same kind of for the Anglo-Saxon names that they are they do have Norman names which is basically what what English names were for around this time but I, I would like to see a more um, up to date list on uh, especially the, the Scandinavian names so um, I'm just gonna give you some suggestions to to the listeners because I'm just a nice guy <laughs> so. Uh, Three very common uh, male names, uh, and you have a bunch of, of kings and nobles. Um, so the first of them is is Birger, uh, which is spelled like burger, but with an I instead of the U. Um, Eric, Eric, uh, you have like, we, in, in the 1500s you had a king that was, he named himself Eric Fourteenth because according to, to the kind of, uh, research that he did when he counted all the other Swedish kings before him, he decided that there, that there had been at least 13 Eriks before him. Um, if this is true, or if he just wanted a high number because high numbers make him cooler, uh, his brother was, uh, when he was a king, was John III, uh, so he, he might just want a higher number than his brothers. <laughs> we don't really know because it kind of depends on how you count who is a king. And for how long, and, and what is a king of Sweden, and what is a king of Svealand, which is one of the regions in Sweden. Ah, yes. Um, but but Eric is is a very uh, common name. Um, you also have Magnus, which is a Latin word, but it became uh, a name and was also quite uh, quite common in Swedish. And you have, for example, Magnus Ladelos, who is a uh, who was a king, and you have. Um, like you, you have this thing where um, 
someone is named Birger and then someone else is named Magnus and when they're the sons uh, of each other you have Birger Magnusson and then you have Magnus Birgerson and you can have it for quite a few <laughs> yeah it just switches which out. can be annoying it and it's kind of funny because Magnus is a very very popular name in the Middle Ages in Sweden it's quite popular in Norway you almost never yeah. see it in Denmark it's oh. it's it's not a very common name in the Middle Ages in Denmark, that's, but but yeah, you see it all the yeah. time in Sweden. You see it quite often in Norway. So it's just one of yeah. those weird things. Yeah, but it's it's kind of the same with with uh, I think Valdemar and and Christian yeah. is a lot more common in Denmark than it is in uh, in Sweden. So I I wonder if if it's basically because like yeah, you don't want to name your child after the rival country's ruling people so to speak yeah uh, they're gonna be picked on in school uh, but on to female names um i'm, I'm just just gonna throw out three uh birgitta ah, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> which is why we, uh, we have birgitta the holy who was a or, or saint bridget as she was called in uh in english uh who was uh a was she actually canonized? I yes, I'm fairly certain yes. she was. Yeah. Uh, which uh, Eric the Holy wasn't, but he was still called a saint here in Sweden. Uh, but uh, Birgitta is, is a good Swedish name or a name that was common in, in Sweden, at least. At least. Uh, you have Rikissa, R-I-K-I-S-S-A. Uh, and then you have Anna, which was mm. quite a common name all, all over the place. So if, if you just want to uh, mix in something more, then, then you can use those. And if anyone wants more names, just ask in the Facebook group and I'll, I'll give you uh, 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 some more names that aren't really uh, the, the more Viking feeling names. Uh, but, but yeah, it's... I, to to go back to what you said, it's really good to have a list of names when you don't have access to the internet. So it's it's a nice touch. And I mean, once again, you you get into the whole discussion of whether or not you have to go for period accurate names. I mean, it's something yeah. that I personally like to do. I'm I have a number of websites that I know I can go to where people have scoured period sources to find names. Mm. But that's just my personal preference. And when you're dealing with countries other than your own, where people might not necessarily recognize that this is a modern name, you don't have to do it. I think I've mentioned this before, but in our Transylvania Chronicles game, my wife, when she had to make names for NPCs um, in Transylvania, what she basically did was she pulled up the roster of the Romanian national soccer team and just took yeah, names yeah. from there, and yeah. uh, I mean, yeah, some of those might be modern names, but names. But does it really matter all that much? You just need some names, and yeah. that it's it's a quick and easy way to go. So, once again, it's it's how much time do you want to dedicate yeah. to this? If if you just have to pull out a random name, you can just do it. If you're sitting down to create the city and you want to name the important vampires then yeah you can do some extra research and like okay so this vampire was from the second century uh and do we have any period names there oh there's a mention of this uh yeah local exactly. chief yeah. who had that name i'll use that name because also then you you get some you can get some really weird names at least to our modern ears and that can also make them distinguish it's like okay that sounds odd i'll definitely remember that character so uh, yeah it, it, exactly and and like you say it's a, it's a really useful tool to making uh characters memorable and and kind of set uh, kind of kind of um fix them to a time period so for example if if you have a, a a vampire in in Scandinavia, and you want to make them stand out that they're really young, then give them a more modern name, or like holy shit, this guy is is still going around by an uh, like a, a pre-Christian pagan name. Then then you can tell the difference between them. Um, and but but as you say, and I think it's quite telling that that uh, the the thing when it came to this these names that that we as Scandinavians kind of uh, crack down on word Scandinavian names because to us they are kind of out of place and a bit too old-fashioned uh, but when it comes to Romanian names it, we think it's fine that that you just use uh, soccer players uh, 
which isn't a, a problem, but I, I I'm guessing that that uh, if if you're a, a Spanish player or or if you're from France, then you could probably do the same thing that we did, but with with the list of of names from uh, from those respective countries. So it's it's very much a thing of of what your cultural references uh, are. Uh, so, and and what you as a player and as a as a person kind of think is just for is fun. Correct, but I just pulled up, I just pulled up the um, the list of the Danish national soccer team, <laughs> and the first names, almost all of them, would actually fit in Denmark in twelve thirty. Uh, there's even. The guy named Michael, that's spelled in the Danish way with a K instead of a CH. So I think that's kind of funny. Uh, Maybe not Yusuf. I don't think that uh, that would work. Um, But but his last name is Paulsen and that works perfectly. (laughs) But anyway, this has been this has been uh, your your uh, usual very, very long tangent then we go on yes (laughs) let's go back um we follow up with a page on personalizing path and it's not really something that i'm a fan of i can see some people liking you going for this is something i feel fits my character uh i would just be afraid that people would try to get rid of stuff in a path that you know gets in the way of them doing what they want and just adding in stuff that's not really going to to be a problem but uh, yeah it's it's one of those things where you just have to talk to your storyteller and as a storyteller you have to trust your players so it's take it or leave it for me yeah i i agree it's again i i think you could probably uh do most of these things through just storytelling and and role-playing rather than like trying to figure out mechanical uh, rules for it um, and I don't know you you can really tell that it's it's the the, the storytelling system of of the day um, is is very much uh, like yeah we need rules for everything because otherwise how are you going to role play it and like if that's the kind of, of gaming or, or play that you like then yeah sure go ahead but like you say it's it's probably not for me. No, exactly. Yeah. Then we have a system for characters in mass combat. Now, I really mm. do like the system, and obviously, these big sort of, of uh, army engagements, they are a thing in the Middle Ages. However, battles are almost never fought at night. They do mm. mention this, and they say that due to the Wolf Princes, night battles would be more common, which I can see that. And they also mention that characters could play their ghouls in a day engagement, which I think is a great idea. Like you have yeah. these two armies who are going to go to war as a vampire. All you can do is be somewhere safe from the sun. So now you are playing your ghouls instead, which is is mm. a really nice twist on it. However, they do not include any rules to model the problems anyone without supernatural senses would have in a night battle. Like you yeah. would really, unless you're fighting uh, under uh, a full moon in a, on a cloudless night, you hardly be able to see anything but except the hand in front of your face uh, but yeah. i will go back to saying doing the ghouls thing in a day engagement that sounds like an interesting option it's something that i think could be could be really fun in a game yeah i i also like the like without having to or, or without actually having played it and tested the system i i don't really know if if it could work or, or and flow properly but like the way it is written and the the kind of simplifications that they made to make things run smooth, it really seems that it could work. And and as you mentioned, that uh, either play as as ghouls during the nighttime or or like come on seriously, of if you're gonna have a nighttime battle, of course you're gonna have it under the full moon. Yeah, oh, true, true. I, otherwise, you're just waste, wasting cinematic potential. That is that is absolutely um, true. I concede the point. And, <laughs> and also on that, on on a more actually on a more practical point of view, there are a number of of battles being fought in the winter time uh, on lakes. Ah, uh, yes. Because then you have a, a nice flat surface wherever one can actually stand. Uh, and the good thing about lakes in the winter time when they're frozen over is that is there's usually a lot of snow uh, around and snow is really good at reflecting the moonlight exactly uh, so so you kind of solve that problem as well 
so so yeah i i'd love to have like a winter battle um and of course then you can have the the snow being uh, red from all of the blood of, of the poor people being killed so so yeah of course you need to have that okay uh, seriously i mean i i'm i'm writing some scenarios for for storytellers <laughs> vault and now yeah i have to have i have to have a a uh, in one of the books a nighttime battle on a snow-covered frozen lake under the full moon. Yeah. Just from your description right there, I need to have that because <laughs> it just sounds so freaking awesome. Yeah, there are chick. Oh, I can't remember the name of the actual battle, but you have about around this time actually you have uh, the Teutonic Knights and their allies getting their asses kicked on a lake by uh, Alexander Nevsky. Yeah, exactly. This Isn't that is just called the Battle of the Lake or the Battle of the Frozen Lake? There is one. There, there is at least a few battles that are called just the Battle of the Lakes. I can't remember if this is one of them, but but yeah, we you can easily look that up. But but yeah, it, it was a thing, uh, and yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to uh, to reading your your <laughs> Battle of the or even playing perhaps if we get that lucky uh, your Battle of of a Lake. Um, <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, it's it's. I like the system. I'm just going to say that, or I like the way it is written, and I think it could really work. And and you could, like, I I imagine the way that you would play this is that you would probably do a few dice rolls, or or you would like the players would like, yeah, I want to do this, or I I'm I'm gonna try to head for the enemy general, and then you would roll a few uh, dice rolls to see how well you made it, and then you could have a more like just a narrative like telling uh, the, the storyteller and the players are like yeah and i'm gonna fight my way through and the storyteller is like yeah but oh no there are too many of them so uh, because you rolled badly so you kind of driven back so what are you gonna try now and and make this more of a uh, cinematic and narrative uh, event rather than just like i rolled four successes so now i've killed 16 peasant levies uh, excellent now roll for the next like do something with it because the the system allows for it. So, so yeah, exactly. make something cool out of it. Yeah. Uh, we then have maturation and rules for elder characters. Um, I'm not a big fan of this. I think I mentioned that when we looked at it mm. in the core book, but I do like two things. The idea that you need to work to maintain your backgrounds and the suggested mm. rules for when an elder can no longer drink from mortals and have to drink from other vampires. Um, yeah. You know the the whole uh, elder thirst or whatever they call it. Mm. I am decidedly not a fan of XP costs rising as uh, the older uh, a vampire gets, with the possible exception of of buying up your your road. Um, and I don't like it, especially when you look at official NPCs, since most of them would yeah. never have had those stats that they have yeah. if such a system was was implemented. Um, yep. So, but that's just my take on it. Yeah, I yeah I, I agree because it's. It just makes things weird. Uh, like I agree with your uh, with, with that you have to actually work to retain your uh, retainers, for example, your backgrounds, uh, because like y sure you can invest in Bitcoin and just let them um, get more and more expensive over like a few dozen years or, or a few years, but if your investment goes literally sometimes over centuries then you're going to have to uh keep an eye on it and and like at least uh make sure that no one runs away with your uh with your password so to speak or that <laughs> that when you want that uh resources 150 years later that it still actually exists because like people die and things can be destroyed so so it makes sense that if if you want to have your contacts then you're going to need to work on them so i i like that part yeah we end with advanced storytelling techniques uh, we have a section on taking the game from the middle ages to modern nights with some nice suggestions and if you want our take on on that specific thing then we did a side quest on that topic mm. There's also stuff about things like journals, dramatic interludes, flashbacks, parallel stories, and troop-style play, which is something that um, White Wolf sort of pioneered in Ars Magica. Um, mm. All of this, uh, I think, is very interesting suggestions, and there are some of those techniques that I'd personally like to try out sometime in, in a game. Um, I, I feel like, you know, they could have spent more time talking about these, these techniques, because what there is, I think, is very engaging. 
Yeah, I I agree. Uh, it's um, my my kind of uh, conclusion and and comment on this section was that it's it's good shit, but it's heavy shit because it's. Uh, but it's it's the kind of game that that vampire is yeah and like it it takes a lot of investment from both the players and the storytellers if you want to do all this uh and i think that if especially if this is your thing like if if you really want to sit down like even between sessions and and go over what your characters did for those two years of of downtime uh, and and do things with that then then yeah these are some really good advices and and some good ways of doing it but if if you're you're more of a uh like if if you just want to sit down once a week and play for fun and kind of um do the things that is happening in in the game there there and then uh then i can see that it's it might be like it could probably feel a bit like just work and not fun and play. Uh, but that's that's just a personal preference between players. Uh, like how what kind of playing style you prefer and what you want to do with it. Yeah, it's, it's um, not like as a, as a storyteller, you probably shouldn't just uh, when the game starts say, uh, say, all right, well, here's the thing. We're going to be doing both journals and flashbacks and troop style play yeah. and all of that and... The players are sitting there going, wait, wait, what? It's like you can talk. I, and I get homework? What? Yeah, exactly. Like talk with your players, figure out how much yeah. of it you want to uh, to use, stuff like that. So, um, so yeah, that uh, it, it's, it's good. But like you said, it is heavy. So you want to make sure that everybody's on board with it. Yeah. And, and like uh, a side note is that if you look at a lot of the, uh, the role-playing games in general uh, from this time period... Um, you you can see that a lot of them have like a lot of mechanical uh, or mechanics rather for things that you would probably nowadays just role play and so, so you can you you have um, a Swedish game that I don't really recommend to anyone that is called uh, Eon uh, and it's like you you probably heard a joke about role. R O L L playing and yeah. not role R O L E playing, uh, and and Eon uh, was very much that because it's it's just charts after charts and and lists and lists and you need to roll dices upon dices upon dices and and uh, uh, the rule set that they had um, was basically that you you only used d sixes for everything uh, but. When you when you roll the six, then you would roll two more dice, and for every six, you would just keep on rolling more, <laughs> more and more dice. Uh, so so it could quickly spiral out of hand, and and especially when you had these kind of uh, this this system uh, or, or the the kind of game where you have a lot of charts and stuff like that, it could just go on and on for ages and and not really be that fun and. Uh, I I see it as a kind of sign of of the time period that 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 game and uh, this book was written in. Yeah, and so things, things like this, these, these sort of advanced techniques. Um, I think if you if you're someone who's been into the sort of indie game revolution that happened over the last maybe ten years or so, this is this is basically going to be like well there's nothing new or special in in this but white wolf were one of the first gaming companies to start including the kind of of more advanced techniques and yeah. the more storyteller oriented games uh, that we that we sort of take for granted now and i mean it can be fun to just play a let's roll a bunch of dice and do a lot of damage yeah. and have a lot yeah. of fun with that and and it can also be fun to to really go in depth and and have a gaming session where you might not even roll dice because the game doesn't really need it. So it's it's all it's it's all what what you and your group wants to uh, to play. Yeah, and and the kind of of uh, uh, rules where you basically roll for for everything, even when creating a character, that can be really cool as well. Like one of my favorite games is uh, Warhammer Fantasy uh, Playing Second yes. Edition, where where you basically you can you can rule everything from your your stats to your race 
to what star sign your character is born in and so on and so on, which can make for, uh, like, if you don't know what to play and like, okay, I'm just going to roll a character, the game provides everything you need for it, um, including names and how many siblings and what kind of tiny little uh, dung farming village you're from. Uh, so, so yeah, it, it, I'm not saying that it's it's a bad thing, but it's it's a preferred style of playing. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, one last comment before we judge the book, uh, and that is that it came with a storyteller screen, which is obviously nice for those who want to use it, but I don't th- feel it's something that we need to spend any time on because, you know, it was just a screen. Yeah, well, I, I, I just want to point out that they, they have a list of, they, they have the basic kind of everything that's that what you need for everything uh, and they also have uh, a list of the sixth tra- tradition uh, but I don't know it's it might just be me but the way the, the kind of font they use makes it looks like the it the sixth tradition actually say says the girth tradition uh, <laughs> it, it might just be me being being a bit silly and tired when I first read it but I can't unsee it now Oh dear, uh, and hopefully now now you can't either. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's a storytelling screen. Uh, mm, yeah, it's it's useful. Well, uh, let's judge judge this book. There's not too much historical content here, and I feel like we have said most of what needs to be said, right? Yeah. Uh, again, like the I, I just want to lift up again that you don't need a special non-European bloodline. There were non-Europeans in Europe during this time period so you can just use whatever clan you want yeah um as a game book for the storyteller i think it presents a lot of good material and since it's a relatively short book it's also fairly Mm. cheap so even if there was stuff in it you don't want it doesn't feel like you're shelling out a lot of money for something that you're not going to use yeah i i completely agree the fact that the things that is in the book uh or things that are in the book uh are for the most part useful and uh, and and well written makes it uh, more attractive uh, for me if uh, as a buyer uh, so that's nice you don't need to flip through hundreds of pages of things that you don't want or don't need or or is just pointless so yeah that's a good thing exactly so next time we're going to be looking at the source book that i personally think should have come out alongside the core book namely dark ages europe uh mm-hmm. remember if you want to support the channel we have a patreon and if you have comments suggestions or critique you can pop by our facebook page and with that peter do you have any last comments before we sign off uh no just thanking all of our listeners and our patrons and everyone else who keeps spreading this uh we have a few listeners in india apparently uh really because uh someone i know know someone who knows people uh from india and apparently they have listened to my podcast and i think that's really really cool awesome i really wish i knew how to say thank you in uh, (laughs) hindi um anyway (laughs) but it is goodbye from me jacob and from me peter farewell and see you next time Bye.